Aloha, and welcome to the first Finding Ohana podcast of the new year. I'm your host, Ross Chun, and I'm here in the Honda Studios in Aliso Viejo with my COVID rescue dog, Buddy. And today, we have a wonderful guest. She's an author, humorist, playwright, and my friend Emily's mother. Today, we're talking with Nancy Davidoff-Kelton, and she's dialing in all the way from New York. Hi, Nancy. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon, Ross. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for joining today. I, well, I really have been looking forward to talking with you. Oh, and I've been looking forward to talking to you, too. Uh, <laughs> our first conversations were such fun. Yes. <laughs> I, I'll repeat what I said. Uh, any one of our conversations would have made a, a, a terrific podcast in themselves, but uh, I'm glad that we could get together now um, and and really talk about some of the things that uh, we had discussed before. Um, so, boy, if you don't mind, I guess let's um, let's jump right in. As I said in the uh, in the intro, the um, that I worked with your daughter Emily at the American Red Cross, right? And so I heard a little bit about you. Uh huh. Um, oh. I I was just yeah. <laughs> I I just. No, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I guess I, I'd, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more um, about how you grew up and, and how you ended up in New York, if you okay. wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. A, I'm not sure I've grown up. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, we lived in a very small house initially and then moved to a slightly larger one closer to the school I went to. Uh, my father was a lawyer. My mother was a homemaker. I have an older sister. Um, when my father got home from work, um, we played ping pong. We played cards. Um, we oil painted by numbers. He was my pal. And on weekends, um, we would go do errands together and I would go with him to his office. No one was there. So we took supplies from the supply room, which included, <laughs> which included yellow legal pads for me because I was already scribbling on my bed. Um, I, I, I kind of like to write at an early age. Oh, and, that's yeah. My, and at dinner, uh, my father always had a stack of books, both next to the sofa in the living room and on his night table in the bedroom, a very, very good author. So there was Mark Twain, there was Voltaire, there was Thomas Hardy. And my father was always reading if he wasn't doing puzzles or playing out bridge hands for himself. He liked his own company. And he gave me the message that I was a great pal and he liked my company a lot, but he also... I think got through some very hard things and got through loving. I hear Buddy. Hi, Buddy. Yeah, that um, was Buddy. Yes. <laughs> um, my father loved his own company. And I think that was a wonderful message. Books were very important. And a sense of humor, the Holy Grail, sense of humor and reading were very important in my house. At dinner, my father and my sister discussed books. Um, and I thought, wow, I can't wait to get into that. That sounds like a lot of fun. My mother took me to the library, the children's library, when I was very little. And when I got older, 
my mother, father, and I would go on, I think it was Thursday night, and my father would get a lot, a lot of books to take home, and we hung out there. And my first job in high school was at the public library, and my job in college at NYU was at the library. So I guess I've always liked being around books, and um, my father used to write me letters at camp and then at college, and when I would get a letter, at first the whole bunk would gather around to hear what dad had to say because they were funny. And then in college, the same thing. My the my doormates would, would come and hear what dad had to say. So I guess reading and writing were always very big in my house and in my life. Fantastic. And that's an amazing coincidence because I, you know, when when I was talking um, with your daughter about you, I had, the, the reason it came up, part of the reason it came up is because I had mentioned that my wife, Suzanne, is also a writer. Yes. And, and you know, it's funny because she worked in the library, loved being around books, right. still does, and, yeah. uh, um, and loved working in the library. So that, yeah. that's an amazing coincidence. Yeah. I, it, it, yeah, I, I love the library. I'll have to talk to Suzanne sometime. And I still love libraries. I, it, I love going to them. I love how quiet they are. I love, I don't know, it's just, it's been a thing. And I, and I very much grew up with that too. Well, and it's funny because when we, when we um, were looking at our house in Aliso Viejo and we were sort of driving around to see what we thought of the area and we pulled out onto the main street and realized, oh my gosh, this house is walking distance to the library. Yeah. And that may have been what sold us on it because we realized that my daughter was two or three, two and a half. And, and we thought, wow, we can just stroll her down to the library. And right. I gained my appreciation for the public library from my wife and then our kids always wanting to go there. No, and that's great. It's, it's such an important part of the community. And, and yeah. even right now, we're struggling to make sure that the county continues to fund our library. Oh. And um, it is one of those things. It, it, it's sort of the center of a city. You've got your shopping areas, you've got your parks, yeah. and you have to have your your library. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that way. I love the library um, near where I live now, the Jefferson Market, and then there's one a little further on Hudson Street. And I, I just love what, not now because of the pandemic, but it's always great fun for me to go there. And I love the children's room in, in each of them. My mother and I spent happy hours when I was very little in, in the children's room. And I just, I don't know, I didn't like being pulled away to go home after that. And, oh. and <laughs> you know, it was just so, so much fun. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I know yeah. even um, my wife's uh, writing group uh, um, used to meet in the library oh. uh, in one of the rooms and, and get together there to critique each other's work. But of course, now oh. with the pandemic, it's all yeah. done on Zoom and it, it, the whole world is different now. Yeah, um, yeah, that's so cool that they, were, that they were able to do that, though, that there's, there were rooms where they could do that. Yes, and, and um, I, uh, a couple of times I popped in to see uh, um, how things were going in that room. This, it, it was a strange room there at the library in our city where it kind of came to a point. It was like a, shaped like a, a pie piece. Um, oh, and I, I saw the the, the the dedicated writers pouring over each other's work and critiquing it. And, <laughs> and so I'm a big admirer and I, I appreciate um, those who can write and create uh, for everyone's enjoyment. And that's why um, 
Writing is very, very hard. I've been doing it. I can tell. I've been doing it professionally for 50 years and it's still hard. And I think I'm more critical of my work now. And I, but writing is a very hard thing. And, you know, I tell my, I remind my students all the time that Hemingway revised the ending of A Farewell to Arms 49 times because they start getting cranky when I say, go back to the drawing board again. It's like the fifth <laughs> revision, you know, a fifth, that's nothing. You know, you, you revise and you revise and you revise. And I, I think it was um, Doris Lessing or Grace Paley who said, if you're not a reviser, you're not a writer. Because it rarely comes out in the first burst. You know, that is incredibly timely advice I, um, at at work, and this is not creative by any means, but at work, I've been writing something on behalf of our CEO and I, I, I wrote it and it looked great. I showed it to someone. They thought it was fine. Someone else looked at it and said, you know what you should do? And (laughs) I changed it and I revised it. Two weeks later, somebody said, you know, the deadline was last week on this, Ross. And I started losing patience. Um, I, I left work yesterday uh, uh, very uh, disappointed that I couldn't hit this on the mark the first time, the second time, the third time. This is like my fifth revision. So I'm going to keep in mind what you just said for creating. 39. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, start with, um, I start with Elmore Leonard's. I have my students read Elmore Leonard's 10 rules for good writing. And you can Google it. And he, ta- he says to take out the parts that will bore people, you know, which of course is easier said than done, but also take out the edge. Um, I think Strunken, uh, E.B. White says it too. Take out the adjectives and adverbs. It's almost like when I go through a student's manuscripts and even my own, first I start with taking out adjectives and adverbs. I mean, it's, it's almost that simple. Then, and then I work, then I work with it, but um, you know, make it as simple as possible. But good writing, I take a five-page manuscript of my students, and I can almost say it starts on the top of the second page. The first page is just, you know, intro. We don't need to know that. And with a three-page manuscript, I'll say something, and it's not always true. It starts on paragraph three, because the writer has to know more than the reader. And then we don't have to share everything. And, you know, this, but this is after 50 years of doing this, you know, I keep learning and learning. Yeah, no, I can tell. And I, and, and so you're talking about your work, you're talking about your teaching. Let's go back to, to how I came to ask Emily, your daughter, if I could meet you. Um, when she told me about your book, Finding Mr. Reitstein, first of all, mm-hmm. I knew, I knew that Emily was Jewish because there'd been a couple of times at work where she had mentioned to me, boy, we're not even acknowledging Jewish holidays here. And I said, I know, I, I, I feel that too. And I, I, I knew she was Jewish. I knew your family is. But when I heard the title, Finding Mr. Reitstein, <laughs> I, I thought, I've got to meet your mother. Because <laughs> someone who would, who would come up with a book like that, a book title like that, um, has got to be hilarious. So could, could we talk about that book a little bit? How oh, you came sure, to write sure. it? So um, one, I was writing a lot about the Rongstein men. I was writing essays <laughs> <laughs> about some of the men who 
Um, we're not keepers. And I was writing about it for publication. I didn't even realize that they were wrong. And some of it, I, I didn't write for publication. I wrote for me or for my blog. And I was also writing at the time um, about my mother. Um, she, she had been deceased four or five years. And I wrote a piece for the New York Times um, Sunday Magazine, Lives Column. My mother was ill when I was growing up. And the piece is called Out of Reach. And she was. And I didn't understand her illness, uh, mental illness, when I was um, growing up. I certainly understand it better now and certainly much more during the pandemic, you know, depression and anxiety. And then she was, my mother was hospitalized. But I guess I thought that I was unlovable and it was about me, which I guess kids do think. And... I kept putting these things together like, huh, Rongstein men and having a mother who, you know, I, I, I wondered why um, I was late to, to finding my Mr. Rightstein. And um, I kind of kept putting it together. And much of the book is, um, you know, you, your um, podcast is called Finding Ohana which mm -hmm. is finding home. So I think it's really about finding home for me. It's, it's not a dating memoir. I mean, the guys are certainly in there. Oh my gosh, are they? <laughs> <laughs> Emily called me once when she was reading and she said, mom, did this really happen? And well, I do some exaggerating and some are composites, but yes, some of it did really happen with the guys, but it was also coming to terms with who my mother was and seeing as I got older that she was ill and she did love me the best way she could. And I mean, she gave me in 1963, the book, The Feminine Mystique. And I, I mean, my classmates, when I took her to school, it was like getting paint in place. Nobody in Buffalo's mothers would do that. It was very progressive. And Part of the problem, I believe, with her was that she grew up, you know, she was a woman in the 50s and probably wanted to do more than be a lawyer's wife. And she was very creative. And I got to understand her better. And certainly, um, as I got older and became a mother, I did. And when I began going out after my divorce, and she seemed to understand things about me being a woman, I, I got to understand her. So part of the memoir is about my relationship with my mother, which completely changed after my father died too. But there was no um, person in between being a buffer or um, yeah, dad, you know, or we would poke fun at her or anything. It was my mother and me. And we talked so much more honestly. And I play the piano and that has a lot to do with my mother. And I have been playing more in recent years. And I, when I sit down, it's almost like she's coming in to listen to me. So I think my writing the book and dating a lot of Rongstein men and le learning who my mother was kind of all came together for me, not to mention some very good therapy. Um, so it was a lot of work on myself, but it was finding home in myself and finding the womanly parts of myself too. That's, that's terrific. I, um, so much of what you just said resonates 
not just with me, but with so many people that I'm friends with, that I'm close with, um, because everyone is dealing with all kinds of things right now with the pandemic, with lo- isolation and loneliness and, and, and with mental health issues. Um, oh, my gosh. And dating is a very hard thing. It's well, very. <laughs> it's been well, a while oh my me. gosh! Right? Yeah. I mean, no, it's so it's it's very hard. I'm very grateful I'm not dating. <laughs> I I say that all the time. I yeah. Uh, because I have friends in my in my age group that are divorced and they start dating, and and dating is so different now. When oh. when you know when I was uh, uh, single more than 20, 20 years ago. And you always hope that someone, a friend of yours would introduce you to somebody rather than trying to meet somebody randomly. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a, there was a guy that I worked with at at the Red Cross and he was dating um, and he was using this app and he would, he made jokes about, Oh yeah, I got to swipe right or swipe left. And I didn't understand it. So he showed me what he was doing and how he found his dates. And I thought, oh, my gosh, thank goodness yeah. I'm not trying to do that right now. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it's really um, it's really very hard. And I thought of the energy that I put into it when I wish I had put into writing at the time, you know, and I was juggling so much as a single mother. Uh, I'm grateful I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> yes. And. And about mental health, you know, right now, I, I, I believe that people are becoming more accepting of, of sharing um, their, their challenges. Yes. Um, and, and it wasn't that way 10 years ago. It wasn't even that way five years ago. It, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't when I was growing up, going to a psychologist in the 50s. It was like a witch doctor. And, you know, it did get more accepting as as we got older and certainly i live in new york where um so in, in what i do my writing students i teach a private group of adult people and many are publishing um they do they are in in, in psychotherapy and in new york city it's you know there are more of them than there are of us yeah <laughs> well and there are I, more you know, psychologists couple... than there are patients i think yes <laughs> Well, a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to a uh, we we went to a support group um, to help understand um, uh, uh, anxiety, depression, and and OCD uh, mm-hmm. in adolescence. And um, you know, we went to a, it was in another city, and in and, and um, it was it wasn't that far; it was about twenty twenty five minutes away. But we went to the support group, and um, she and I got there late, and so we were sitting in the back of the room and listened for about. 45 minutes and it was almost over and the psychologist who was leading the discussion and there's about 50 people in the room wow and the the psychologist who was leading the discussion says said um does anyone have any questions before we close out and so i leaned over i leaned into the aisle i raised my hand and he said oh yeah in the back and so i asked a question and as i was speaking most of the people in the front room turned around and looked at me and said Oh my gosh, that's Ross. And I looked up and I realized that I knew half a dozen, a dozen people, all from my city, Eliso Viejo, who had all driven uh, 20, 25 minutes to hear and to learn about supporting our oh, children yeah. who are suffering. I realized, oh my gosh, everyone is dealing with this. If oh, I yeah. know this many people, and afterward, we all got together and we're sharing stories. 
and experiences. And that's when I really realized it is rampant right now. It's rampant and also being very open. I, I write very personally. Finding Mr. Reitstein is very revealing and about who I am. And I don't know, I, I've gotten fan mail who, and people say, I've been through that with my mother. I've been through that with my father, you know, and um, I, I've i been through that with my sibling and um, or it's very, very hard to be out there, this dating thing. And but it, much of what I, I do write, I, I do go inside myself and it's wonderful to have readers tell me, yeah, that's how it is. I feel like you're in my house listening to me. So um, that's one of the great joys of, of writing, for, you know, for publication. And, and so now you're, you're adapting the story for the stage. Could, you, could you tell a little bit about that? So when I was launching Finding Mr. Reitstein, the book came out in 2016 um, it was the year Emily moved to California, actually. So much was going on on that year. Um, I was doing a lot of uh, talks here and workshops, writing workshops in bookstores and the libraries, community centers. And as I was reading from the book, I actually could see some of the scenes so visually. Much of what I write in everything and my, my essays and this book is dialogue. I do hear voices. I guess if I weren't a writer, I might be in a padded cell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I hear when somebody says something, I'm also often triggered and it's um, into a piece or a section, I wasn't a section of the book, by something that somebody says. Sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's a student, sometimes, um, uh, um, it's just something I, I hear or, or read, a voice, and it gets me into what I want to write. And one of the first pieces I ever had published, going back to the early 70s, I was teaching in a public school, and the piece was called Teacher's Lunchroom. And it was a conversation between two teachers, um, talking about two first grade teachers talking about how their kids were doing in reading. And it was and I thought it was very funny. Um, they were one, you know, my 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 blue group is in this section, and oh, mine's in a better section. It was a little biting that I I wrote that, but it was great fun. And then in the seventies, I started fooling around with writing plays. I I am a big theater buff. Uh, my first trip to to New York City with my parents from Buffalo in 1957, I saw the Diary of Anne Frank, and it was amazing. And when my family got up after to go up, you know, when the play was over, I was still in the attic with the Franks. I couldn't leave. I was glued awesome. to the seat. I thought it was amazing. And I, I, I can't stand how much of the theater is closed now, but I do love the theater. And maybe because I hear voices, I was um, taken to the theater um, in Toronto and in Buffalo and brought to New York once a year um, to see the newest plays. And then my sister moved here and I, I visited her. But um, wait, what was the question? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Tell us about how you're adapting the story. Yes. The so stage. I guess I always 
when when I wrote the book, I I, I so visualized the scenes. I the book is mostly in scenes, in 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 pictures, uh -huh. um, and whatever the scene was, a date, a visit with my mother, and my my mother lived in a nursing home in her last few years, and I kept seeing the scenes, and I I jotted them down. I no longer had the legal pads. My father and I took from his office, but I, I did, um, I, I started writing and I don't know, I wrote some, I started writing plays in my thirties and it was the most fun I ever had writing. And I got divorced and I didn't stick with them because I wanted to connect to magazines then, which I did, um, writing essays and have more teaching jobs. But the, the joy of doing that, I, I, it just came to me you know, a few years ago, and I just started scribbling away with the play. And it's been a lot of fun and a lot of hard work. Uh, uh, the re I mean, revising and revising and revising more. And after a reading in my house, um, I had hired a director and she said, you need an inciting scene to open the play. And I changed I did change it to what I think is an um, inciting scene, but I I am very open to criticism and boy, I'm getting it and I'm making the play better and tighter and I think funnier and deeper, but it's an ongoing process and I'm, I'm loving it and I find it hard work. Well, I used to say that I'm open to constructive criticism yeah. uh, myself. I would say that all the time because I mm -hmm. never really experienced the criticism that I have recently. And it's not criticism of myself, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I have found that when you create something and you pour uh, your effort and maybe even your heart and soul into it mm -hmm. and someone says, you know what, instead of doing that, it, you know, mm -hmm. whenever someone starts it off like that, um, mm -hmm. I find that that's the hardest part is thinking, oh my gosh, okay, we're throwing this out and starting over. So if, if you are able to do that with something that, that is a representation of your life and your experiences, I have to mm -hmm. say, I really admire that because it is oh, a well, tough thing. You. It is it's, difficult. Yeah, it's, and it's still very hard. I, um, I just got an assignment to do my Valentine's for next Avenue, um, which who I write for and, I keep writing to Emily and her kids. <laughs> I, I want to include some other people. I actually, um, I wrote a children's book. I wrote four children's books in my 20s. And they were published in 1977. But one was on Harriet Tubman. And I, I think I'm going to write a Valentine to her because I just, writing about her really, the, the pen started moving without me. It was so thrilling to read about her. She was so amazing. But I'm writing to all different, my first piano teacher and my, you know, my last haircutter and different people. But it does come out personally. And I do, I'm still, it's still hard. I'm not sure who I want to write to this time. Do I want to write on my first crush? Do I want to end with my present husband? You know, um, should I write to my grandchildren separately? Um, you know, I could write a whole Valentine to Emily. So it, it, it's going to go through several drafts, I think. Yeah, and that sounds like a fascinating uh, project. I can't wait it's to It's fun. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny because it was, I was just talking about this with somebody um, uh, three years ago. Um, I was asked to write a personal letter to my children oh. um, to be put into a time capsule for 50 years. Oh. And boy, that was an emotional effort 
to try and think, knowing that um, when they open the time capsule, if my children are still in the area, they would get this letter from me. Oh, that's great. And what a a great assignment though, right? Yeah, it it really was. And um, I wrote this, well, yeah, I wrote this letter that I worked very hard on. And, um, and I talked to the County of Orange, who would ask me to do it. They gave me specific instructions, and um, they uh, they said, "Okay, well, send us, you know, send send in a letter." And like a week later, they said, "You know, there was an objection to your letter." And I said, "How could there be an objection? I did exactly what you asked me to do." And they said, "Actually, somebody on your city council objected to it. They said it was too personal." And I said, "Oh my gosh, wasn't?" it's supposed to be a personal letter from me to my children. And um, they said, yeah, actually out of 34 cities, only one person objected. um, And it was to your letter. And could you rewrite it? And I ended up after all that work, pulling all the personal stuff out and turning it into I know it was so disappointing. Oh, that is disappointing. I often give an open letter to somebody, um, you know, well, but you would never mail saying something. It can be getting something off your chest if it's a boss or an employee or something or a family member or a romantic partner or whatever. And when I first started doing this, I had a student who wrote a letter to Christopher Columbus saying, if you had gone this way instead of that way, we wouldn't be here or this and that. So I guess his mother always told him he was funny. And then I, I, put on the manuscript, you don't and didn't know Christopher Columbus. For next week, write a letter to somebody you know very well, saying something that's very difficult for you, but not Christopher Columbus. Don't try to be something, be who you are. And he wrote to his daughter, he was divorced and he hadn't seen her in years and he missed her and he hadn't celebrated her birthday with her, and he feel he wants to apologize for his absence and for um, neglecting her. And he would like to see her. And can they, you know, can they resume their relationship? And they did. But I read this. It was in my. I think it was in, when I was reading everything aloud. There wasn't a dry eye in the class. It was oh. great. And really, I think when you do write personally without revealing. And there is a difference, and I I do talk about this in my writing book, between self-revelation and self-absorption, which is the difference between aha and oy vey. (laughs) (laughs) You can't begin every sentence with the word I. It has to, you have to create a picture. If you want to show loneliness, you can't say, I, you know, uh, no one wants to play with me. I'm home alone. It's Saturday. I don't know what to do. You might want to show yourself at the dance with everyone else being picked. And there you are standing, create a scene or on the, you know, on, on the field with the other kids being picked. But to dramatize, dramatize, I guess is the word I'm going for here, dramatize the loneliness rather than going I, 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 which is kind of off-putting. It's kind of what belongs in a therapy session rather than in a piece of writing. I, I, I is telling, not showing. Boy, that is exactly right. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and I'm guessing some of what you said, most of everything, what you said to your kids was great, except for the one person who couldn't take it. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> it's, I was just telling this story the other night to somebody and they said, what? And I said, that letter never made it into the time capsule. And it's so disappointing uh, to me. It is. Huh? That but, is, it, it, it is disappointing. I wrote an open letter to Emily um, when she was a, a little girl, I think it was published in Red Book, um, that I hope she had it all, you know, a wonderful career and a loving partner and family. She does. I mean, you know, those things. But, you know, at the time I was going through a divorce and I wrote a letter to Paris Magazine to my dad. It didn't reveal everything, though. I mean, to how I felt it was certain things about certain aspects that I wanted to say certain things I wanted to say to my father and I wanted to say to my daughter. I wrote an open letter to a student years ago for the Christian Science Monitor. He was reading, he wasn't, uh, he was reading, he walked into my first grade class reading on fifth grade level and I wasn't sure how to reach him. And I had to send him to the library to get, you know, fifth and sixth grade books, as opposed to putting him in a reading group. But I was a new teacher, but it was wanting to reach a student who came in not having to learn how to read. I mean, I think open letters are wonderful exercises. Well, I hope I get a chance to do it again. Someday. I do too. <laughs> I, I do too. And I hope you get to reveal what you want to reveal. That's a wonderful exercise that you got to do that. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I do think that that was a terrific idea. And it's one of those things where, you know, I, um, I uh, have seen so many TV shows and movies where they're opening a time capsule. And it, it, it gave me an opportunity to sort of envision that happening in real life. So well, yeah. it's, it's an opportunity that's passed, but maybe it'll come back around. Oh, again. I think it will. And you can do it for yourself. I mostly write for myself. And I mean, I don't always write the whole piece anymore. But I'm usually trying to find out how I'm feeling and where I'm going. And um, the, the, the revision process is not always saying it better and getting rid of clutter, but it is going deeper into the self without it being I. In finding Mr. Reitzing, oh my gosh, how many times I revised that, I can't believe it. But now the play, I've revised the opening and I believe it's better and the ending I so see it, and I, the, I hope people get to the ending, and I hope it's produced, because I think the ending is so completely what I want to say, and I don't always feel that way. I feel like if I get to 60 to 80% of what I want to say, that's great, and this is probably 94%. Oh, terrific. <laughs> terrific. So... So is that is that the next big thing that you're working on, or what what can we look forward to? I I uh, I, so, I want to also find out. Uh, we'll, we'll get to this, but I want to find out how um, uh, the audience can uh, can get a copy of the book. But also, so is 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 the play the next big thing you're working on? Is that what well, we should look forward? I'm to? working on the play, and because I I am sending it out. Theaters are not exactly open, and I have to find theaters where. They want plays by women, sometimes by women over 50. And um, I, you know, I'm looking for regional things. And that, so the marketing, which I do in the afternoon, because I like to use my most creative time to write, which is the morning. 
Um, so I do some marketing of the play and some revising and uh, tightening of that. Um, my book, Finding Mr. Reitstein, was published by Passenger Books in Baltimore. And if people want to get the book, they can um, go to Passenger, not Passenger, it's P-A-S-S-A-G-E-R books, all one word, dot com. And then at the top, there's Shop and Subscribe. Um, and they can order the book through my publisher. Um, it's Finding Mr. Reitstein is right there with the other books they've published. Um, if people want to contact me, I have a website, www.nancykelton.com. And I have a blog if people want to subscribe. I might put this, the uh, podcast, if, if I may, on my, you know tell people about it on my blog. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to have a zillion people hear us talking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is so much fun. Um, so that's, you can, one can get in touch with my publisher, um, Passenger Books that way and shop and subscribe. Um, if and when, I've, I've had a reading of Finding Mr. Reitsting in the Jewish Repertory Theater of Buffalo, the whole a Zoom reading of it. It was wonderful. And I've had, um, it's been, the first 10 pages have been accepted by short play festivals. Now I'm trying to get beyond readings into productions. I will certainly let you know, and I'll put it on my blog. So I'd love to have subscribers. And um, my, my memoir is very much, I don't want to say a blueprint for the play, because the play I, I go out more on a limb. I, I, there is some fictional um, stuff in with the, um, the, my true life story. Um, you know, the, the part about my mother and me, my mother being in a home and my um, connecting with her the last three years is my favorite part of the play. Of course, meeting Mr. Reitstein and finding him and all was great, but <laughs> they do, they do come together in a way, you know, I actually take the one before the one, the right, one of the Rungstein men to visit her. <laughs> and he was the kind of guy, I guess I thought she would have liked years ago. He was dressed right. He was a corporate guy. And she said to me, what I think doesn't matter. You have to like him. And I, wow, that was a great thing to say, of course. And I, and she said, do you? And I said, I'm not sure. And she said, well, be sure. And, uh, you know, it was great advice. But we had, a, we really, my mother and I really clicked um, as I got older and as she got older, which was very lovely. And so the, the story, both in my memoir and in the play Finding Mr. Reitstein, are, I do believe, Many people were not parented perfectly. So, um, you know, I think that resonates with people. And I think finding the right person, you know, is really, it really does resonate. That, so that's, that's what has resonated with me. Oh, my good. life experience. Um, and I, I frequently joke about my relationship with my mother and, and my two brothers, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we grew up as a typical family, um, I think. Uh, in in the way we either related or didn't relate to each other. And uh -huh. so that's why your story, it, it sounds so relevant, so impactful, and so interesting 
that I, I'm really looking forward to it. And and you're coming out to the West Coast sometime when travel is fine and um, and people are, are uh, behaving safely again. That's Is that correct? Yes, I'd like to come out before because I miss them so much. Um, and, you know, FaceTiming is wonderful. And then I hang up from a FaceTime and I just, I go turn to their pictures and the videos and, you know, hold on to that. But yes, we're going to try to come out very soon. And I do hope to meet you and um, you and Emily and me would have just, I think, two to four hours of laughter and warmth. <laughs> I think I think so. And I told Emily yeah. that. I, um, Because so when Emily got hired, um, we were in the middle of the pandemic and no one had met her in person or seen her. Oh. We were we were on Zoom calls and then there was an attempt to have a birthday party for somebody where we 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 gathered in a parking lot and drove by their house and waved to them. So oh, I, I I briefly saw Emily and I thought, oh, she's taller than I thought because I'd only seen her on Zoom. Um, we really got to be friends over the next year only no. through phone calls and Zoom. So um, I barely. The water finds its level. I'm not surprised that you two are friends and. She's beautiful inside and out, um, but I'm not surprised. It's so you know, she's she's wonderful. She's great fun, so funny. Um, but sometimes you do become. You and I have been talking, and it's almost like we talk every day. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but I do hope that we can get together when you're out here. Oh, definitely. And and I'm going to put all the information um, about uh, about how to to buy your book and and about your uh, play on. Um, the Facebook page uh, for the Finding Ohana podcast, so that the listeners can go to it and get the information. Um, oh, great! Yeah, so we'll we'll do that. Um, I, I, you know, I promise to keep this. I told you now. I promise to keep this to thirty minutes, but I said it goes fast, and it's a it lot does. of fun. And look, we're over forty minutes, and and oh, it's, it feels it's like been we, totally fun. Yeah, um, we, could, we could do it for an hour, and it would be great. So it's great. I really, I love talking to you. And I'm looking forward to meeting you. Um, and I hope that's really soon. I do too. Thank you so much, Nancy Davidoff Kelton. Thank you very much. Um, I will look forward to and hope for uh, an in-person meeting. And we'll make sure we get the information on, on your work out on our Facebook page. And listen, I just want to thank you so much for spending Saturday afternoon with us. And, oh, thank and you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you. I'm sitting oh. And I'm looking at the time now, and I, I it went so fast. And and this was a busy call. We had Buddy barking in the background. I don't know if you heard. Also, we had a tsunami warning that was oh. the alarm that was going off in the in the background as well. Oh so gosh. all kinds of things are happening in California. But oh. we we persevered, and I had a terrific time, Nancy. So thank I had you a terrific so time too. I love talking to you. Thank you. Enjoy so, the rest of your day. Bye, Buddy. <laughs> bye, bye, Nancy. We'll talk. Bye, to you bye. Soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye now.